This is the Elite Development Podcast, a show with the aim of helping athletes evolve in every element of their careers through real-world advice and experience. I'm your host, Kenny Dussault. I'm a strength and conditioning coach in Calgary, Alberta, with a singular focus on building better athletes. And now, let's get to the episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Elite Development Podcast. Today, I have Rob Maver with me, a CFL veteran of 10 years, I believe, who spent your whole career with the Stampeders. Is that correct? That is correct. Awesome. Can you give me a little bit of background, uh, your time in the CFL, and just sort of what what brought you to where you are today? Uh, I started playing football in high school. Uh, Wanted to go to university, realized that football was the best chance for me to do that. Uh, went to a bunch of camps, got recruited by a bunch of American schools. Nobody wanted a scholarship and out of state punter. So it was all walk on. So then was limited to the CIS in that regard. Um, had a good career at Guelph, uh, went to mini camp with the Atlanta Falcons, uh, got cut, got drafted by Calgary, uh, started off as a place kicker, got hurt my second year, came back as a punter and had eight good years doing that. Oh, so seems like things worked out pretty well, like 10 years in the CFL. Like I believe the average career length when I looked it up for players is I think 2.6 seasons. Is there anything that you feel like you did that kind of helped with, helped you with such a, such a long career? I played the right position for starters. <laughs> and then number two would be I was fortunate to be with a good franchise that stuck with me through some growing pains. I had the same special teams coach and the same general manager for the full 10 years, which is unheard of. So when guys get cut, it's usually because you're not somebody's guy. But uh, if you are able to stick with the staff and to benefit from that continuity, then your career is going to be longer as a result. So it was, uh, I'd like to say it was all hard work, but it was largely a product of circumstance. Okay. And, uh, Obviously, as anybody who watches the CFL knows, uh, the Stampeders have been a pretty successful franchise over the years. You guys, in your time, how many great cups did you guys end up going to? We went to five. We won two. And I think our winning percentage over those 10 seasons was 0.74. So we basically won three quarters of the game that we played in, which is pretty remarkable. It's a stretch of Stampeder football that will be looked back on fondly just because we were so dominant for this entire decade. Do you think there was anything like with the team as a whole that uh, anything specific that contributed to that or just the right players in the right circumstance and things went well for you guys? Excellent leadership and Huff and coaching. We're really well coached. We had a lot of excellent players. Uh, Burris, you look at our quarterbacks, Burris, uh, Tate, uh, Bo, you know, those guys are going to go down. Um, a lot of, Iconic Stampeders played throughout that time, too. Okay. Nick Lewis, Juwan Simpson, John Cornish, Rob Cote, uh, Kenyon Rambo. Um, there's, uh, you know, Charleston Hughes. Uh, there's so many guys that were able to play big roles for a long time. And, again, that stems back to the continuity. But we, we just had a lot of – we had a lot, all the right pieces in place. Yeah, that makes sense. When you've got the right pieces and you've got longevity with that many players, it kind of things things start going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing I was reading about was over your time in the CFL, 
there were three or four different rule changes that sort of affected uh, the job of the kicker. And uh, in some reading, there were people talking about how well you adjusted to those rule changes. Can you talk me a little bit through like what those changes were that you had to adjust and how, how you went about adjusting to those changes? Yeah, it's a good question. So when I first came into the CFL, you could basically kick it out of bounds. And I want to say the biggest rule change was previously when I came into the league, everybody can run on the line of scrimmage. So depending on, you know, which way you were kicking the ball, you could slide release before the ball has been kicked. So what that allowed you to do is get more guys down the field quicker. Um, And then in 2015, they changed the rule so that your interior five can't leave. Uh, So your, your tackles guard and your center can't leave until the ball's been kicked. So what that does is it basically, it restricts it, creates a dog pile of players on the line of scrimmage, which creates a lot more space for the returner. And it makes you have to get rid of the ball a lot quicker. So before it was just kind of a kick it far and, you know, let's go cover it. And then it turned into a, the kicking game became a lot more strategic in the sense that your, your operation between your snapper and your punter had to be a lot quicker. Uh, You had to get rid of the ball in less space because the way the protection schemes were broken down, everybody was in a lot more confined space and you couldn't kick the ball as far, but you also had to kick it higher because you needed to give your cover players more time to get down there uh, into a smaller area of the field too. So um, it changed in terms of delivery, uh, both the amount of space, steps that you took, and time with the football, um, uh, the amount of time that the ball was in the air, the placement of the ball, the distance of the ball, all these things became increasingly important at that time. Okay. And so for yourself, obviously, as one of the main players that that rule affected, um, how did you go about making the changes? Because obviously, if you've been doing it one way for your whole career, and now they're coming in and they're saying, okay, here's a new, here's a new way that you've got to play your position, that's got to be a big change for you specifically, and then secondary for the team around you too. Yeah, it was it was different for everybody on the field, because you know, for, for me, I'd only been punting in the pros for a few years, but we had, you know, Randy Chevrier at the time who's been snapping for, or who had been snapping for, you know, give or take 50 years. I mean, the dude is a dinosaur, but, uh, you know, he got a penalty for running down the field, uh, once, um, just guys who had been used to covering kicks the old way. It was a big uh, adaptation, but ultimately it, it comes down to, uh, if you want a job, you'll figure it out. And if you don't, then you won't. Um, but just, just training, you know, repetition, training properly, um, working on the thing. So f- for me, it was breaking down, okay, you know, what are we trying to achieve? And then, you know, for lack of a better analogy, put the goalpost there. So if we need to get rid of the ball in two and a half, three yards, we can't take, you know, four yards anymore. Practice shortening your steps and taking less steps. Uh, get rid of reduced motion or ec- any excessive motion. Um, Practice kicking the ball higher, not farther. Practice placement. And every single time you go out on the field to make sure that your training session is targeted towards achieving those outcomes. Yeah. So do, do you find that uh, like after that rule change, did it take you, did, do you feel like it took you a while to get those things down or was it a pretty smooth transition for you? It wasn't smooth, but um, the rest of the league struggled to be fair. It's uh you saw average return goes up. Uh, the average punt return went up. Uh, you'd see way more scores. Um, frankly, a lot of guys that punted in the early, you know, 2010s, 11, 12, 13, 14, 
a lot of those guys didn't punt 15 afterwards. There was a big, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but there, there was a big, you know, changing of the guard, if you will, for that position, because a lot of people couldn't adjust. And the style of punter and the style of kicker changed at that time. So um, the, the game took even more of a shift, though, in the sense that the CFL, in my, in my opinion, has always been a very return-focused league. And then when you add, you know, we're going to put you on a massive field, you can't kick it out of bounds, you can't release, and you, you know, you can't release until the ball's been kicked, you need to give the returner five yards. The field's just too big. Um, so at that point, the advantage was shifted so heavily towards a returner that they benefited from that. And then in the last few years, I feel like you've seen some punters really trying, you know, it's, it's one side always trying to trick the other and one's always going to be ahead of the other. And I feel like returners did an awesome job this year in the CFL, but some of the punters were figuring out how to game it for them. Yeah. So it's interesting because like watching football, you know, you don't, I don't think I realize quite how much goes in, like how much thought, how much goes into, you know, exactly where you're trying to place the ball as the punter. So to hear you break it down like that just kind of goes to show that every piece of the puzzle, every job on the team has that extra, that extra work and that extra focus that goes into it too. Yeah. It just, it, it changed everything. It's, you know, rule changes are change, yeah. but it's, it was changed from, you know, your scheme to which impacted your spacing, which impacted, okay, you know, before you would do a, a, a zone slide combo with man in the back end, you know, CFL Pro used to be a variation of that. And then it turned into a man at the front zone in the back. But because you had everybody in a smaller space, that changed the body type that you could have on punt too. And then, so you, it, it was just, you, you went from changing your personnel to your scheme to how you kick the ball. Um, there, there was just a lot of changes and you needed to, you, you needed to prepare accordingly. Yeah. Clearly the Stampeders did a pretty good job of that with five, five great cup appearances over that time. But <laughs> yeah, we, we did well. We did. Well. Yeah. And uh, what were, so what were the punt rules like in the CIS? Like, so before coming into the pros, was it an adjustment coming into your first season in the pros? Was that quite a lot different or was there uh, how was the transition there? So my university football coach actually wound up being the special teams coach for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. So in 2010, my rookie year in the CFL. So we actually ran CFL systems at Guelph. Uh, so when I started kicking at Guelph, it was, you know, it was directional, but it was grip it and rip it, kick it outside the numbers. Life was pretty easy. Um, so I feel like my first year adjust, my first year punting in the CFL in 2012, um, I was actually the CFL all-star and I, I adjusted pretty well, but once the rule changes took place, that's, that was the tougher adjustment. I would say it wasn't from going from the CIS to the pros. It was going from playing the pro game and then learning how to play it a different way. And you're doing that in a period of time because they didn't implement those rule changes. They, I don't think that they were made final until April and training camp started late May, so you oh. had you had a matter of weeks to try and develop. And I I don't even think they realized the uh, the impact of what they were doing at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. In that little amount of time, it's got to be tough to realize that okay, the way you've been doing it all along, now we're going to come into this next season, and all of this stuff's going to be changed for you. Yeah. Um. So on that note, what was the biggest adjustment for you coming from? the college game into the pros if it wasn't rule changes or anything like that 
just understanding what you do is now your job. So college was kind of different in the sense of, you know, all you cared about is if you won the game and then you go out and have a few beers with the boys. Um, in the pros, the first thing you care about is how you perform, because if you don't perform, somebody else will do your job and then you don't have a job. Yeah. So of course you wanted the team to win, but your focus was much more self, uh, self-focused in that sense. And that you always wanted to control what you could, nothing else. Um, and just approaching it from a professional standpoint of view and that this isn't something that you're just doing anymore for fun or doing something with the intent of going somewhere. You've arrived more or less. How do I stay? How do I not get that tap on the shoulder? Um, how, do, how do I keep my job? <laughs> and uh, so on that, was there anything specific that you changed about your game, your preparation or like how you approach the game to make sure that obviously you were sticking around as long as you did? Yeah, just understanding where your weaknesses are and attacking them. I, uh, I, I trained hard in college and, you know, I, I worked to be, um, to be fit and to be a good kicker. But in, in the pro level, you're judged by not what you're good at, but what you're not good at. So say if you go out and you have a 10 punt game, hypothetically, and you do seven or eight well, you're going to be spending 90% of the film watching the, the one to two that you messed up, not the seven to eight that you did well per se. So it's really about limiting your, it's really about limiting your mistakes because everybody at that level is capable and they're talented. It's just a matter of learning how to be that, you know, consistent player every single day when you go into the stadium. It's a good analogy that I used is, or that I've heard used rather is you have your, you know, your, your balls that you just smoke, you know, like, or say if, you know, it's, it's, you're going to the driving range with your, your driver and an A ball and A plus is, you know, a 320 drive and A ball is 300, 290. And you have that, you know, have those guys that hit the A, the A plus, but they'll also hit that C or that D ball where their range is up here to here. Um, you know, really, really good or really, really bad. And I always tried to be that guy who lived in that like B, B plus range. So I wasn't really going to smoke the ball out of the stadium, but I was never that guy who would go out and hit multiple bad punts in a game. I just tried to be really steady and really dependable. Yeah, that makes sense. I think you nailed it there with the consistency. Like uh, in all of these interviews that I've done, that's one really common theme that comes up with different athletes, different sports, different levels and coaches as well with what they're looking for is it's always talking about the player who can be the most consistent, even if they're not necessarily, you know, the top guy out there every single night, you know, them, you know what you're going to get out of them and you know that they're going to perform. Those yeah. are always kind of the guys you want on the field. Yeah, exactly. Cause for these coaches, this is how they, they feed their families. And if you're a question mark past a certain point, you're not worth the risk. So just for me, I just tried to be that b-ball hitter, be consistent, and that's it. <clears throat> yeah, so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, so now, obviously, you, so you retired at the end of the 2019 season? Yep. And uh, so since then, what have, uh, what, have you been, what have you been up to? What kind of things have you been doing? Uh, so I was pretty lucky in the sense that I found an employer who would work with me uh, through my last season. Um, where there we go sorry i just hit something um so i was working part-time with them through the season so i work with a private mortgage investment corporation now 
which in, in the middle of a pandemic, loaning money to people is very interesting. Um, I can imagine. <laughs> but, uh, so, so basically, it's, we're, we're a private mortgage lender and uh, we, spe- we specialize in residential real estate, different functions. So it can be flipping properties, it can be debt consolidation, equity takeouts, short-term purchases, um, th- yeah, mor- mortgage transactions, and we're funded by private investors. Okay. Um, and like, well, along with that, I remember you mentioning as well that you were doing some work with the CFLPA. Yep. So <clears throat> I've been a CFL Players Association rep for a few years, um, which has seen me at the negotiation table for two CBAs. And I thought that was as crazy as it could get. And then this pandemic came. And now it's how do we prepare our members and how do we get everybody aligned and get the right information out there so guys understand what's happening, what are the implications of starting a season late, what happens if we can't do one at all, um, and, and just managing that chaos. Because half of our membership is on the other side of the border. So this isn't as simple as cut and dry as, hey, we just need to look after the Calgary guys or no, it's how do we work with our executive and um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that's getting, uh, that's getting pretty chaotic. It's, uh, it's a wild time for sure. It is, it is. Yeah. Um, and so the other thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about just bringing it back to playing is uh, just what you're hitting on about, you know, being the like being the most consistent player you can and always trying to control what you can, whether it's the physical preparation going into the season and just your ability to do your job. Um, One thing I see often with younger athletes is again, they'll do the training, they'll kind of spend the time, but there isn't really the precision, the sort of drive within their training to get as much as they can out of it all the time. Do you have any thoughts, any takeaways for athletes who are trying to come into the pro levels, things they should be doing now, things they should be working on to help them get to the next level and help them have the success that you saw? Uh, I could talk about this for hours, but (laughs) simply put, um, I had a great kicking coach named Don Sweet. And one of the ways that he put it to me was, you know, the big bucket mentality versus the small bucket mentality. So again, drawing on golf, because a lot of kicking and golfing analogies are, they apply. If you go to the driving range and you get two big buckets, you're just going to go out and you're going to swing and you're not going to get any better. But if you have a limited number of golf balls, you're going to place more concentration on every single stroke. Where if you say, I'm going to hit three with my nine iron, three with my seven, three with my four, three with my driver, and I'm going to chip a few, that's it then you're going to get more out of that than you will just going to the field. So every single time that, you know, you do anything, whether it's a workout in the gym, whether it's a workout on the field, whether you're stretching, whether you're watching film, make sure that your workout is targeted and that, okay, this is what I'm trying to achieve today. This is how I'm going to work on this. And I'm going to have that discipline to go and execute that plan. So I'm actually getting something out of this. And that's something that's really hard to do when you're young. Because when I was younger, especially, you know, they call it the one more syndrome where you go to the field, you hit a few balls and then it's really tough to shut it down because you're having fun because you're kicking the ball well or throwing the ball well or whatever. And then all of a sudden you start to get tired and then your form starts to go. And then you say, okay, I want to, I want to go on a, I want to leave on a good note. But then you start compensating and doing things because you're tired, you're mentally fatigued, you're physically fatigued. Um, you've been out there too long and all of a sudden you're just trying to compensate and now you're, you're creating bad habits. 
So when I first got drafted by the Stamps, an average workout on the field would be 90 minutes. <clears throat> the last two years, I would warm up and prob and this was after, you know, like having a hot shower and stretching and doing a proper physical warm up in that sense. But in terms of kicking, I wouldn't hit more than 26 punts a workout. And then that, that includes warm up. So I hit a few warm ups. Okay, visualize a few scenarios and then just go. And that's kind of like the you know, you watch guys in the NBA shoot free throws. They shoot until they're hot and then they kill it. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing is just understanding, okay, what is the aim today? Have that discipline. Do that and then turn it off. And it's it's the hardest thing because, you know, you, you love being out on the field practicing your craft, whatever it is. But just understanding that in some cases, you know, I guess like hockey or rugby, those are true grit sports. But anything that's, you know, dare I say a skill position you need to understand what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think you nailed it with that for sure. Because I know there's, I feel like you probably spoke to tons of young athletes out there right now that, uh, you know, they go want to go until they can't go anymore every single time they go out. And although the mindset can kind of sit in the, well, the more I do, the more practice I had, the better I'm going to be. Right. You know, I completely agree that if you, if you have your target, you know what you're trying to achieve, then once you do that, you've got your work in for that session. Yeah, it's it's quality over quantity. And at the end of the day, too, especially at the high levels, your opportunities in a game are limited. Yeah. So why are you going to try and replicate a situation that doesn't matter when the lights are on? Okay, yeah, that makes sense, too. Like, if you're trying to replicate more towards what's going to happen in a game instead of just going out, kicking and kicking and kicking, and then leaving yeah. when you feel like you've had enough. Yeah. Was there anything in those later years that uh, that made you think that made you find 26 as that number that worked for you, or was that just sort of through time, through experimentation? Yeah, like the 26 isn't a hard and fast number; it's yeah. just kind of a guesstimate. But it just got to the point where, okay, warm up, focus on, you know, what what are my points of emphasis for this workout, and you know, this is what I'm going to focus on to try and hit this kind of ball today, or this is what I need to emphasize based off of what I'm seeing in film, because if nothing's a, or if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. So I'd always try and focus on a few things, you know, two or three specific things. And then it was just, okay. Um, you know, hit three of this type, hit three of that type, four of this type, four of that type. How do I feel? Okay. Maybe let a couple of big ones go and then just kill it. Just kind of hit until you're happy. And yeah. it's really, it, it's, it's challenging to get there because Again, you know, that you're kind of programmed to think, okay, you know, more is better. Working harder is better. It's, no, and then it also kind of reaches a point, too. When I finished playing, I was 33. My body couldn't go out there and kick for two hours if I wanted to. I'd get tired and I'd start kicking poorly. So it was a matter of, okay, how do I maximize my quality, um, limit the recovery time that's necessary? And that's another thing, too, is frequency. In recovery. So if you go out and you do anything way too hard, the time that you can, that you need to recover is going to be longer. So yeah. it's better to go out and have, you know, let's just say hypothetically three to four days a week at lower reps than, um, you know, one time a week at a million reps. Yeah. Because the quality of those is going to be better. Right. So it's, it's understanding exactly what you're trying to achieve and then working backwards from that. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Like just simply the number of reps, like doing a hundred reps in a week is, you know, 20 reps a day for five days. is going to be a lot different than a hundred reps a day once a week. Exactly. 
And uh, so for those kids that maybe have just heard this and realized they've got to switch up something about how they're training, do you have any recommendations, any thoughts on like whether it's from watching their film or ways that they can analyze their play to know, you know, how to find the weaknesses, how to attack those the best way they can? What do you want to be better at? That's, that's the biggest thing is everybody, especially, you know, athletes who are trying to get to that next level, whatever that is for them, what is the weakest part and, and what was the weakest part in your game preventing you from getting there? You know, attack your weaknesses. So, um, and become really good at the part of your game that you excel at too. So try and try and minimize where you're weak and where you're weakest and work on those, but also try and excel in um, the areas that you're strong. But ultimately I would just say have, have a purpose and make sure that every single one of your workouts, whether it's in the gym, whether it's on the field, whether you're watching film, make sure that you set, you know where the goalposts are before every single time. Cause if you go into any kind of training session and there's no aim to it, then what are you looking to achieve? How do you know when you've, how do you know when you're done? How do you know at the end of the day, okay, that was a good day. You know, it can't just be based off of a feel thing because then you're just guessing. Yeah. And the way things are now, you can't, it's too competitive to guess. Yeah. That makes sense. So the earlier you can be doing stuff like this as well, the earlier you can have those processes in place um, well, the better chance you're going to give yourself, the longer time you have to train that way and prepare that way, the more time you're hopefully been doing it for longer, then you're going to be that much better prepared as you move up the levels, as you move up the ranks and yeah. into those more competitive, more competitive positions. Yeah. And I, I would just say for all the young kids out there too, don't get pigeonholed into one sport too early. That's how you get injured. That's how you kind of burn yourself out. Do, uh, you know, sports should always be fun. Um, having said that when it's time to go to university and if you have, uh, you know, if you have a specific goal, then work towards that. Yeah. Do you have, uh, like, do you have sort of an age or even if like a broad range of age where you would feel like kids should start to sort of lean more towards one sport or find that time where they should specialize? Or is it like, do you have any thoughts on that? Should be intrinsic. You know, your, your desire to, to want to specialize or to shift your focus on a single position or a single sport, that should just be organic. And if, if it doesn't come and if it isn't just natural, then you, you probably shouldn't be doing it. You know, at the end of the day, you just got to listen to what drives you and what you want to do. It, it shouldn't be something where, you know, when I turn this age or when I hit this, uh, this milestone or this or that, this is when I narrow in on this. It's, no, if you're, if you want to play a single position and that's where your drive comes from, then yeah. But if, if you're a kid and you still enjoy playing everything, then play everything. Yeah. And I've always been a big believer in that too, because you know, you're going to learn things as a football player, I'm sure from playing baseball, from playing soccer, from all these other sports that maybe not directly, but will translate in the form of different coordination, different looks, different you know, different needs from the sport that you're going to be able to bring back into your sport as well. Yeah. And you don't want to be doing anything too in your body. That's too repetitive. Yeah. So the more, you know, range of motions that you can adapt to the more training methods, the, the whatever, it's just going to help you be a more well-balanced athlete. I would never tell anybody just, you know, focus on kicking a ball from when you're 14 on because <laughs> that just wouldn't be fun and it wouldn't be good for you either. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that a lot. Um, so we're right around the half hour mark right now. And I know uh, we, you had some other stuff you had to get off to tonight. So I don't want don't to keep you too long. Uh, uh-huh. So I wanted to say thanks again. But just before we wrap up, if I can ask one last question. Yep. If there was a way for you to go back to the first year of your career and give yourself in 2010 one piece of advice to stay with you over your career, what would it be and why? Just keep things simple and focus on your process over the result. And that's such cliche. And I know so many people hear that, but you know, my rookie year, I got worried about, you know, what the coaches were thinking or what my teammates were thinking or, you know, just go out there and try and try and be steady and don't, don't try and do too much. Don't try try and do too little, just, just have fun with it. And, keep things simple. Don't overcomplicate things because if you're overthinking things, you're putting things in your mind that don't even exist because you're creating them yourself. So just keep it simple. Yeah. I think that's a great, uh, that's a great piece of advice for any athlete. I know that's something that uh, myself, even in the strength and conditioning realm, I still struggle with from time to time, but keeping in mind, it's the process over the outcome. You know, the outcome can be affected by so many external factors, but your process and what you can control is your best chance of positively affecting anything else that happens on the field. And that's what, then that's what you can repeat. Yeah. You can, you can make a process repeatable and you can adapt that to different situations, but you can't control the outcome, but the better your process is, the more likely you are to have a consistent outcome. I love it. Um, so that's, that's what we'll wrap up. I just wanted to say thank you again so much for agreeing to coming on and doing this. And, uh, especially with everything going on, going on in the world right now, I hope everything, uh, everybody stays safe. Your family's doing well. And, uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Kenny. Take care. You as well. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Elite Development Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, I would greatly appreciate if you subscribed and left a review for the show. As well, I would love to hear what your biggest takeaways were from the episode. My contact info is linked below. Send me a message and let me know what you thought. As always, I'm your host, Kenny Dusso. Thank you again and see you next time.